Our sermon this morning comes from Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Romans chapter 5 and verse 3. Please hear now the word of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Will you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we come now to hear from you. And so we ask you to help us. We need your service this morning, Father. Please come through your spirit and take these truths and let us delight in them. Let us experience them. Let us taste them. Let our souls and our hearts rejoice in the truths that God is for us and forever shall be because of the work of Christ. Help these truths to comfort us as you glorify yourself this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One pastor tells the story of an early life experience in Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when the famous pastor was still a practicing physician. He says one of the most prominent surgeons that Lloyd-Jones worked with at Bart's Hospital, without any warning, suffered the loss of a woman to whom he was in relationship with. And after her sudden death, Lloyd-Jones was surprised to find this mourning chief surgeon standing in the threshold of his door to his office, asking Lloyd-Jones if he might come into his office and sit by the fire. And perhaps Lloyd-Jones speculated that he wanted a secluded place where he could mourn undisturbed. His biography writes that for some two hours without a word, the distraught great man stared vacantly into the grate until every aspect of the scene was indelibly fixed on Lloyd-Jones' memory. In fact, he would write in his own words, that event had a profound impact on me. I saw the vanity of human greatness. Here was a tragedy, a man without any hope at all. You've, of course, faced such trials. You've endured such suffering and sadness, some difficulty and distress. I wonder how you've responded. I wonder if, unlike this surgeon, if you, in the midst of these times of affliction and trouble, have any hope. Hope that it will turn out for your good. Hope that there's some purpose in this suffering. Hope that this is not simply the dark cave of despair, but rather is a tunnel that will lead you to even better days. Perhaps even today you come into this room this morning carrying the weight of some unspoken distress. Perhaps you find yourself here sitting in this pew listening to me this morning and you, friend, are in the midst of great trial and trouble, struggle and sadness. Perhaps it's a health issue, maybe an aging parent, maybe the loss of a loved one, maybe it's unrealized plans or trouble at home or trouble in your bank accounts or, or trouble at your workplace or maybe even trouble in your church. Maybe you face more mundane issues. 
like traffic jams and broken appliances, or trying to move your family of six small children and a seven and a half month pregnant wife 200 miles from home. I think if there's anything more universal in this fallen world than suffering or sadness, I know not what it is. We all encounter this. We all struggle with this. The question, I think, for us as we look at this text is how do we handle our times of trouble? Whether they be big or small, whether they be once in a lifetime or routine, how do you respond? Some have suggested a stoic determination. That you just, with a steel spine, push through the trouble. Others have advised that we ignore it. Maybe you numb yourself with a hobby or entertainment or even the bottle. I've heard some pastors suggest, well, you ought to get mad at God. Shake your fist at him. He's a big boy, they say. He could handle it. Some have suggested we should seek comfort with friends, that we should uh, seek comfort perhaps in church, perhaps we should serve others. Some have suggested we ought to call out to our Father. Some of this advice is good and wise, others is not so much. But I would like this morning to perhaps consider the explicit biblical advice. In fact, advice is a bad term, the the biblical command that we have before us here in Romans chapter 5 and verse 3. The apostle writes, more than that, We rejoice in our sufferings. There's God's command to you. Rejoice in your sufferings. Perhaps your translation says exult in your sufferings or even boast in your sufferings. This is strange advice, I think. This seems otherworldly to me. This is certainly something you will not hear, I think, from the lips of Oprah or Dr. Phil or any of these other self-help gurus that we have running around. This almost, if you will, if, if, I, if I could um, verge on the, the, the border of irreverence, it almost seems like uh, some ivory tower theologian that doesn't even know what suffering's like who gives us this strange advice. Maybe a, a well-meaning but inexperienced pastor that, that looks at us and says, I'm sorry you're in trouble, but you ought to rejoice even in the midst of it. But I'm afraid that accusation won't stand with the apostle, for I would guess that his acquaintance with grief and trouble and trial far exceeds your own. In fact, he would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, these words, Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast. Same word in Romans 5.3. I will rejoice all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, the apostle says, not only will I, I rejoice in my weaknesses, but I will do so all the more gladly, he proclaims. He practiced what he preached, what he calls for you and I to do. The apostle himself followed his own advice. You may want to know, what are these weaknesses that he speaks of in Second Corinthians? Well, he tells us in the next verse, in verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with one, weaknesses, two, insults, three, hardships, four, persecutions, and five, calamities. In other words, all sorts of trouble, all sorts of trial. Whatever trouble and trial that may, that may test your faith in the goodness of God, whatever hardship that may come upon you that may challenge your confidence in the power of your Father, Paul says you ought to rejoice in the midst of that. Now, perhaps this is Paul's somewhat peculiar tendency. Maybe he's a little bit strange. 
Well, I'm afraid that accusation won't hold either. And James, the brother of Jesus, will give a similar teaching in James chapter 1 and verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Peter himself will echo these, this counsel in 1 Peter 1 and chapter 4 and verse 3, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory revealed. And the counsel that Peter and others gave, they too practiced, for we know in Acts chapter 5, after they had been flogged by the Sanhedrin, they left that counsel according to scripture. Uh, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. In other words, friends, rejoicing in the midst of suffering is a, a repeated scriptural mandate. So is this how you respond? Or perhaps you are like me and you have room to grow. I, I, I believe I've gotten to the point where I can at times rejoice despite suffering. But he's calling for us to do something far greater than that. Rejoice in suffering. Perhaps we would be helped if we could consider why. Why is it that we should rejoice in our sufferings? This is what I'd like to speak to you this morning about. Two simple points for us this morning that I think the apostle lays out for us. First of all, we have joy in suffering or we should have joy in suffering because our suffering sanctifies us. It, it, it refines our character. Note verse 3. The apostle says more than that. So just stop there for a moment. You see what he's doing. He's referring back to what he just spoke about. Remember last week, if you were here with us, we saw the Bible tell us in Romans 5 and verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also obtained access to this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so the apostle says, listen, friends, if you've been justified by Christ, as Mark has uh, reminded us this morning, you have one, peace with God. You have two, you stand in his grace. And three, you hope in the glory of God. And perhaps when you begin to think about that, that sounds pretty spectacular. I'm God's, uh, no longer God's enemy, but I am I have peace with him and everything he's going to do for me from this point on is grace. And I, in fact, I even hope in the glory of God. You may begin to think, well, life's going to be pretty easy. Shouldn't life therefore be trouble free? Shouldn't pain and suffering and difficulty be behind me? And the apostle says, no, no, no. Your justification does not purchase for you a pain-free life, but what it does is it purchases for you purpose in your suffering. That it's not pointless. It's not gratuitous. It's actually intended by God to accomplish something. In fact, the Bible teaches us this over and over. I've identified five biblical purposes of suffering. One would be the fellowship purpose, we can call. That the, the intimacy in which you experience with Jesus grows deeper in the midst of adversity and suffering. I think many of you can testify to that. There was a time in which you suffered and you realized at that time that God was closest to you. Or there may, we may identify a kingdom purpose. Paul says that we actually complete the afflictions of Christ by showing how much you treasure him. In the midst of difficulty and hardship, you show people that he's worth trusting in when you rejoice in him, even in the midst of your suffering. There's also taught an eternity purpose. Paul and others will routinely remind us that these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, which is simply beyond our comprehension. There's fourthly a disciplinary purpose. At times, though not always, suffering is our father's loving correction on our rebellious behavior. 
And fifthly, I would suggest to you that the fifth purpose, biblical purpose of suffering, is that suffering refines us. It transforms us. It strengthens our holiness and our hope. And it's to this purpose in which the apostle, I think, is talking about here in Romans chapter 5, that we should rejoice in suffering because it actually makes us, makes our hope in him grow. It actually refines us and makes us more like Christ. You see, friends, your trials, your troubles, and the hardships that you face are designed by God to bring you into greater maturity. He has not simply just gone to heaven and left you here on this earth to be smacked around by circumstances and happenstance in this life. But he is going to use everything, even your trouble, even your suffering. In fact, I would say especially your suffering to actually begin to mold you and to shape you and to conform you into the image of Jesus. Therefore, we ought to have joy... Not simply in some future manifestation of glory in which we one day will inherit, but we ought to rejoice even here in trouble. Not because we like it. Not because we enjoy pain or hardship or difficulty or stress, but because we like what it does in us. Namely, transform us. In fact, the apostle lists three ways in which this suffering transforms us. It refines us. It sanctifies us. You notice as we read on in verse 3, he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Perhaps your translation says perseverance or patience. I believe it works like this. When hardship comes upon us and your life becomes painful, frustrating, uncertain, disappointing, rather than becoming bitter and angry and complaining, rather than shaking your fist at your father, you look to your father in faith. You trust him. You say, I don't understand what's going on in my life. I don't know why this is happening to me, but you are my God and I trust you. I believe, in fact, I stand in grace and no matter how hard and difficult this is, I believe this to be for my good. And when you face trouble and trial in that way, your faith grows strong. It endures. It is strengthened. Your trials exercise your weak and flabby faith. To make it strong and enduring. You face these tests all the time, I've trust. God is trying to grow your faith in him. I faced a trial that was somewhat, um, it was not a big deal, though I failed completely in June of this year. Every year, uh, I like to take my family camping. And to uh, take the carnation on a family trip requires uh, logistical miracles. In fact, to be on a camping trip, we require a successive degree of miracles just to keep the toddlers out of the campfire. But to actually get on to the camping trip, we, it takes weeks of planning for us in our 28-foot camper and, and getting that all packed up. And we go every year, and the kids get all excited every year. And we play, when we go on camping, we, we play uh, Narnia games. Um, we actually call it Carnia. So there were these are the Carnians, and we had to have all sorts of great and wonderful time as we play these games. And we were getting ready this June to take our family camping trip, which we have on the calendar, and everybody's so excited about. In fact, we had to delay it a day because we found that our camper was infested with mice, and we had to clean that out. And we told the kids, just trust us, we're going tomorrow. And that morning, I got the Suburban and hooked it up to the camper, and I I pulled out the camper, and we got the camper all packed up. And I got all six of my kids packed in their car seats, and they were all strapped together. I asked my oldest son to offer a prayer of thanks to God for this great opportunity which we are going on. And as soon as he said amen and his daddy turned the key in the car... 
Nothing happened. I turned it again and nothing happened. The car worked that morning. And I summoned all my vast automobile mechanic ability. And over about 45 minutes while I kept the kids in the car, but certainly God intended for us to go on this camping trip, Daddy would fix the car. You know, there's a unique kind of pain in this world called disappointing children. Perhaps you've experienced it. When your children are young, they think you're a hero. Right? In fact, my, my boys think I'm a Jedi Knight. Um, a Jedi Knight should be able to get the car to start. He should be able to take his kids camping. I wish I could tell you that your pastor turned back to his kids and said, Listen, kids, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know we have a Father in heaven, and he only intends good for us. And so this little trouble and trial that we're encountering is for our good, and we will trust him in the midst of it. Rather, I think I said something like, This can't be happening. (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. I failed my test. And we could joke about it. But I believe by faith that my Father in heaven said, Stephen, I'm going to give you a little tiny test. Because I'm going to give you the great opportunity to teach your children that your faith works even when your plans don't. I'm going to give you an opportunity to point your children to a Father in heaven that we're going to trust even in times of silly difficulty. In fact, I didn't even know I was being tested until the day later when my eight-year-old daughter wrote in her journal my wife found, we couldn't go camping, God was testing us. Daddy failed. (laughs) It's true. You see, God puts trials in your life, and sometimes they're silly, like failed camping trips. Sometimes they're significant and serious, like cancer or death of a spouse. And he wants to know, in the midst of that trouble, will you trust him? Do you believe that he is powerful and good and in control of your life? Do you believe that you stand in grace? It's at those times that your faith is made strong. It is in those times that your faith grows. You ask our older brothers about when their faith grew, and Abraham will point to Mount Moriah, and Jacob will tell you of his stone pillow, and Joseph will speak of his prison years, and Elijah will talk of his time in solitude in the wilderness, Jeremiah his time in the cistern, David his flight as a fugitive, and Paul will speak about a lacerated back, feats in stockades in a Philippian jail at midnight. God will put trial in your life, friends, To cause your faith to endure. Persevering faith is produced through the fire of trouble. So I tell you with with the word of God, rejoice in your sufferings. Because your suffering is designed by God to produce an enduring faith. But that's not all it does. Read verse 4. And endurance produces character. He goes on. And so the the suffering produces uh, endurance, and the endurance leads to character. The character sometimes is translated proven character. It kind of really means the experience of passing a test, the provenness. And I think we can understand this. When trials come and hardship comes and we maintain our faith in God, we maintain our trust in God, do we not prove to ourselves our character? Do, do we not, are we not at the, at, as a result able to look at ourselves and say, I, I am a Christian. I am no hypocrite. I do believe, even when God takes away every reason for me to trust Him and to love Him, I do trust Him. 
And we prove to ourselves, we get great assurance of our salvation that we truly belong to him as the trial proves the genuineness of our faith. Is this not the conversation that, that Satan had with, with God about Job? I mean, the devil said to him, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. He's, the, the devil said to God, the only reason he loves you is because you're blessing him. You put a little hardship in his, in his way, and he'll show you that he's a hypocrite. He doesn't love you. He loves your blessings. He loves your gifts. He loves your goodness, but he doesn't love you. That was the accusation. You see, what happens when God allows these things to happen to us and we actually endure in our faith, we actually prove our character. God is intending to give us assurance of our salvation. We emerge from the other side that we do trust Him. In fact, not all pass this test. Perhaps you know people who once followed Christ and suffering and hardship comes their way and they flee from Him at the first sight of trouble. Jesus told us there would be these fair-weather Christians in His parable of the soils in Mark chapter 4. He said, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Yet they have no root in themselves and endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. You see, hardship is intended by God to prove the truthfulness of our character, to show us the depth of our love for Jesus. And when it does, it leaves us with this wonderful sense of authenticity, this wonderful sense of security. I do believe, I do trust in him. So I say with God's word, rejoice in your suffering because your suffering proves your character. But it does not stop there. As we read the end of verse 4, we see a third result, a three, third transformation that takes place because of this Suffering, when we read, and character produces hope. And when you endure this tribulation, you end up with stronger hope, refined hope. Now, you, it doesn't produce the hope so much. That is, it doesn't create the hope. We come into the trial with hope. We saw that at the end of verse 2, that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The Christian life begins with hope. But what happens in the midst of this trouble and trial, we get hit by these trials, and what do we do? We grasp on to God. When things look hopeless, we turn in faith to Him. We cling to God like a little child holds on to His Father being comforted in His strong arms, and we emerge from that trial more confident with more hope in our Father's goodness. Friends, you will never experience the comfort of His rod and staff unless He leads you through the valley of the shadow of death. And it is in that valley that you learn through your experience that he is with me and that he will never leave me. And he's got this covered and he's going to turn this for my good. And he's in control and he will never forsake me. And you emerge from that trial with abounding and refined and strengthened hope in your God. Therefore, rejoice in your sufferings, friends. Because your suffering grows your hope in God. Brothers and sisters, your trouble and trial is God's invitation to you to trust him. Do you believe in him? Do you trust him? It's amazing when I look at this passage and I see the good that God says come, is designed to come out of suffering. That suffering is designed to produce endurance and endurance character and character hope. And yet there's so little rejoicing in it. We struggle here. 
In fact, we know people, and perhaps we know ourselves, that suffering has rather led to despair and bitterness, resentment, division, murmuring. It didn't lead to hope at all. It led to the opposite. So how is it that you and I can make sure that the suffering that we encounter will not lead to these negative effects, but rather rather lead to endurance and character and hope and joy? Well, I think there's a little word that we kind of skipped over here in verse 3 that's very important for us to focus on for a moment. It says here, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Note the next word, knowing that our suffering produces character. Or produces endurance. Knowing. You see, there's, we rejoice knowing. We need to know these truths. We need to understand how it is that God's work works. We need to know about the sovereign goodness of our God and that we stand in grace. We need to know that He's purifying us. It's an act of faith. We need to, to put our trust in Him. The power to rejoice in suffering comes from knowing that your Father is both omnipotent and good and He is going to work in your life for your good. You need to believe in him. You need to know this. It's not difficult to trust him when the sun is shining. But when the clouds of adversity arise overhead, it's there that we need to know these truths and believe in them. Will you trust him when you lose your job? Will you trust him when your marriage is shaky? Will you trust him when the medical report brings unwanted news? I'm not asking you to deny the pain. The Bible doesn't say we ought not to weep in the midst of those trials. But will you trust God in the midst of the pain? When the trouble comes upon you or, or even someone else, friends, I think you would do wise not to simply pray the trouble away. And yes, do pray for relief. But until that relief comes, when the hardship lingers, ought we not to, to be a good steward of our suffering? Should we not also pray that, God, will you help my faith to grow strong in this? Will you, God, help my character to be proven in this? God, will you not refine and grow my hope through this? Rejoice in that suffering, knowing that God is doing a good work in you. If you are his, it's all grace. You stand in grace. This is what God calls for us to do. It's a challenge, as you know. In fact, sometimes I think the greatest challenge in the midst of suffering is we actually begin to struggle with doubts. We, 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 you know, the, the world's going to say, contrary to what I'm teaching this morning, that there is no purpose in suffering. The, the world's going to teach you that these are just random events of a troubled world and that you and I naively are going around rejoicing in that which is only bringing us harm. I think sometimes the assurance, the trouble with insurance is not whether I'm real. In fact, there, there are really two enemies to your assurance of salvation. Are you a Christian? Sometimes we doubt that, I think, when we plunge ourselves into sin. And so suffering's designed to show us that we do trust him. But the other uh, enemy to assurance is, is he real? I mean, the, the world's going to say you're, you're, you're putting your faith in a pipe dream. You're, you're in the midst of hardship and you're going out around like a fool rejoicing in the midst of it when there is no good that God is going to bring about it. There may not even be God at all. Is there a way that we can be sure of these truths? Is there a way that we can be confident that what the Scripture tells us is true? Well, I think there is. In fact, I think this is what Paul anticipates in verse 5. I think he anticipates people saying this is nonsense. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. For, he goes on to tell us, secondly, that we can have confidence in hope because we know God's love. 
Look at verse 5 for a moment. The Bible says, and hope does not put us to shame. So the suffering uh, ends up producing this hope in our life. And then he says, I want you to understand that the hope that this suffering produces when your faith endures will not shame you. It will not disappoint you. You've been disappointed by hopes in the past, have you not? I hoped in that person. I hoped in that investment. I hoped in that child. I hoped in that job. I hoped in that cure. Right? We've all put our hope in things that did not work out. They shamed us. They disappointed us. But the Bible is saying this hope is different. This is a hope in God will never disappoint you, that God is real. And that your faith is real and the glory of God is real. One day Christ will return at the sound of that trumpet riding the clouds of heaven with a host of angels at his back, riding every wrong and releasing creation from its bondage to decay. He said, it won't disappoint you. But how do we know? Is there a way to know? Well, there is if we read on in verse 5. For he says, because... There's the reason. Look, verse 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because, here's his argument, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ this morning, do you realize that the Holy Spirit resides within you? That the intimacy with, that you have with God is so great that He actually dwells within your heart through His Spirit. He has been given to you, the Bible says, and he has a ministry in your life. The ministry, according to verse 5, he has many ministries, but the one we see in verse 5 is he is to cause you to experience the love of God. He pours out the love of God into your heart. In fact, I think there's probably two ways to know that God loves you. What one way would be an intellectual way, an argument, right? We, we could say, we sing, don't we? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's an argument. I believe Jesus loves me because I read this book and the book tells me that he loves me. There's, that's an intellectual way to know that God loves you. But there is another way to know that God loves you that verse 5 tells us. It's an experiential way. We could say Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Holy Spirit causes me to experience his love. Now someone else will have to rewrite the lyrics. But this is what he's getting at. He says the Holy Spirit causes you to feel loved by God. Isn't that amazing? That that your hope that you're a Christian and that God is real and that he loves you will not disappoint you. And you can know this for sure because you have God himself who lives within you and that he causes you to delight in and to experience God's love for you. And so the world's going to lie to you. The world's going to say to you, listen, there's no point in your suffering. The world's going to say to you, in fact, there is no God. This is all just a succession of random events that brought us here today. And the devil's going to lie to you, isn't he? When you face trouble and trial, God's left you. You're evil. He must hate you. We're going to hear these lies, but the Holy Spirit comes and he tells us the truth. He's, he's what God does to battle the lies that we may have confidence that, the, that we believe, what we believe is true. He loves you. Even in the midst of pain and suffering, he will tell you, your father loves you is his ministry. I want you to understand if you're a Christian here this morning, the father means for you to have assurance of your salvation. 
He means for you to have assurance that when you die, you're not going to hell. He means for you to have assurance that when you die, you're not going to cease to exist. He means for you to have assurance that you're going to have a role in the eternal reign of Christ. He needs for you to have assurance that you will live upon the new heaven and the new earth in unending and ever-growing delight and satisfaction. And it's the Holy Spirit's ministry to give you this assurance. You say, well, how does he do this? How does the Holy Spirit actually communicate God's love into my heart? Well, I'll tell you, he does not do it apart from the Word of God. It's not, okay, I want to experience God's love, so I'm going to go empty my mind. I'm going to enter some trance. I'm, I'm going to have some happy buzz in the middle of the night. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. He actually causes us to find delight in the Word of God. He takes the, the historical realities of God's love and inclines our heart towards them. In fact, look at verse 8. We'll, we'll, if God is willing, we'll study this in depth next week. But verse 8 says, But God shows us, shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so there's a demonstration of the love of God. I know God loves us because while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. In fact, if, if you're here this morning and you happen to not be a Christian... We're so excited that you're here with us this morning. We praise God that you've come to, to be with us. And I, I would like to tell you that God loves people who are not his. And he has shown us that love. Verse 8 is very clear. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'll tell you, friends, that the way that Bible says that you get reconciled to God is not by your own righteousness, not by your own goodness, not by your own merit. You will never stand before God and say, let me into heaven because I'm a good person. My good deeds outweigh my bad. I'm better than my neighbor or Hitler or whoever it is you want to compare yourself to. That won't earn your place in heaven. There is one way and only one way only, and it is to bow your knee to Jesus Christ as your Lord. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I have the greatest news in the world for you this morning. You do not have to work your way into this place. You simply have to submit to your God, believing in his son. In fact, he shows you how much he loves you here in verse 8. He shows us how much he loves us. And so the Bible, we can look in the Bible and we can see evidences of God's love. But what the Holy Spirit does is he opens our eyes and our hearts to rejoice in the majesty and the beauty of those evidences. See, the, the word of God, the, the preaching is, is, is not going to open your heart to the glory of what it reveals. It doesn't, in other words, what I'm doing this morning does not cause you to experience God's love. That's not my job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. The Word of God reveals the evidences of God's love. The Holy Spirit causes you to delight in it. Preaching is supposed to direct your minds to the truth of God, and the Holy Spirit who indwells you is to cause you to experience that. I could show you pictures of the mountain, of the, the majestic mountain of God's love, but the Holy Spirit will actually take you there and set you atop its peak that you may see and delight in the majesty of God's love for you. The Word of God will give you the content. The Holy Spirit gives you the experience. The word of God will make plain what God did. The Holy Spirit makes it precious for you. This is his ministry in your life. He wants you to be sure that you are his and that your hope will not disappoint you. I think you do well, therefore, to seek this assurance. Don't you want this ministry, the Holy Spirit in your life? 
Don't you want the Holy Spirit to continually cause you to delight and rejoice in the love of God for you? Oh, I do. I think you ought to consider the evidences of God's love. Search his word. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. This is a a display of God's love for us. We ought to consider God's love. Take our eyes off our suffering and our trial and our trouble and put it upon the cross. For there we see the love of God. And then, as we consider that, ask God to give you an ability to delight in it. Pray to him. Really pray. Help me rejoice in these truths. The Apostle Paul prayed this to the church in Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians verse three, chapter 3 and verse 5. He said, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Friends, your heart has directions. It is inclined towards certain things. And the Bible says we ought to pray that God would redirect our heart to delight in the love of God. You ought to consider these truths and seek the Holy Spirit's help for you. So friends, are you suffering today? As we end our time this morning, I especially want to just talk to those of you who are in trouble, in trial. Of course, I don't want to ignore the rest of you because trouble and trial will come your way soon enough. Are you suffering? How is it that you respond? My hope and prayer, especially based upon the word of God, is that you would not murmur at him. You would not grow angry, frustrated, annoyed, but that you would see it as God's opportunity to grow you. That God wants to do a good work in your life, no matter how hard it is. And that you would be able to rejoice in this work. And so ask him to remove it. Ask him to take it away. Ask him to give you ease. But while it lingers... Let it do its transforming work. Let it recreate you more and more into the image of God. Let it refine your hope in the glory of God. As I tell you, friends, and I believe the Word of God teaches this, when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, His grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. He only designs your dross to consume, and your gold to refine. Father in heaven, we thank you that even in the midst of hardship and trouble and trial and difficulty, we are not outside your grace. There are people here this morning, Father, I I don't know who they are, but their life is in turmoil. It may be at their work. It may be in their home. It may be in their finances. It may be in their health. They don't know, Father, what tomorrow brings. They don't know how it's going to work out. I pray especially for them this morning. That the faith which you have given them As we even sung this morning, you are the author of our faith. You would refine and strengthen. That in in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death where they are this very moment, that they would know of your rod and your staff. They would know that God is with me. 
and he's doing a good work in my life. I don't understand it. I don't see it. I may not put it all together in this side of eternity, but I choose to believe. I pray that you give them hope, refine it, and strengthen it. Work in them. Remind them, dear Lord, that this life is a pilgrimage here. We are sojourners on this earth, headed for home. Help them to trust in you in the midst of it. I pray for my friend here this morning, dear Lord, that for one reason or another has refused to bow their knee to you. Perhaps they don't believe that they need to. Perhaps they believe that they are good enough to stand before a holy and righteous God. Perhaps they believe that all roads lead to the same God. Perhaps they believe that Christ did not come to this earth to die for them. Perhaps, dear Lord, they don't want to give up their sin. I pray for them. And I ask that your spirit in their life this very moment would reveal to them the the abounding grace that you offer them today. That joy, fullness, depth, meaning, purpose in life is not found apart from you, but is found in you. Help them to trust in you and repent of their sin this morning. For the rest of us, dear Lord, who find life to be easy and relatively trouble-free, I pray that in the midst of of this, the sun shining upon us and the enjoyment of all the manifold blessings, dear Lord, that we would continue to love you and not that which you give us as we rejoice in family and homes and career and health, dear Lord, that, that all these things would never become our idols, that they would not become our treasure, that we would not simply seek the hand of our Father, but that we would seek the face of our Father, that we would not simply seek what He can do for us or give us, but our joy and delight would be found in Him and Him alone, that You would help us even now, dear Lord, to let all these things, let us rejoice in them, yes, dear Lord, but let them point to You and let their constant refrain be to us. If you like me, God is like this only 10,000 times better. And so when you and your sovereignty decide to remove them from us, dear Lord, we will not go grow shaky or troubled that we would not doubt or be filled with despair, but our joy will be found not in the possessions of this world, but in the God who loves us beyond our imagination and his son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, for it is in his name we pray.